countries with a IES, not. Uh, in cycling, there's, there's three what are called Grand Tours, okay? The one that we're all probably familiar with is the one here in the middle. It's the Tour de France. It's a three-week race that happens in July. You might have heard of the one that happens in Italy. It's called the Giro. Giro means tour in Italian. So um, the Giro d'Italia, which happens in May. And then you have the Vuelta. Again, Vuelta is the Spanish word for tour. That happens usually kind of late August, um, September. I bring these, these beautiful tours up, first off, because I like talking about cycling. But oftentimes, these races will start off with something that's called a prologue. Okay? And a prologue is, as you would expect, it's a short stage, it's a short time trial held before a race to establish a leader. So imagine we had the tour of Garden Grove, right? And we would have a race that would happen from uh, Valley View to Seal Beach Boulevard, right? I'm kind of doing it this way because that's the way. Um, you'd have a race from along Lampson from Valley View to Seal Beach Boulevard. It's about, that, that would be about five or six miles. And these guys would go one by one by one by one, and it would just be as fast as you can go. And a lot of times, you know, these athletes pedal hundreds, thousands of miles over these three weeks. But this specific one would just go, this prologue stage would just go from, say, Valley View to Lampson. Again, the fastest one would be the winner of that particular day. Now, the reason I bring up the prologue in cycling, because I think it's a good segue to, to loop back to what we talked about last week, because last week, in, in a lot of senses, is, was a prologue sermon for this series that we're doing on the Trinity. It was, it was an early kind of establishing the tone, the leader, um, the basis of, of what we need to understand. Oh, man, that's going to do it right there, right? The Cheerios are just... Um, that, will, that is, is the basis, it's the tone of what we'll use over the next couple weeks as we understand the Trinity, because when we talked last week about, you know, that kind of phrase, God is love versus God is Trinity, and we said that we'll never understand God is love until we understand that God is Trinity, right? We used this particular um, sheet of paper that we passed around. It was, it was this kind of lengthy quote by a guy named Douglas Jones, about the importance of love, about the reality of love, about the way that love operates in and around the universe, how it really is. Um, another way to think about this is, is frequency, right? It's the frequency of the universe. So uh, scientists will tell you that every single thing in the world has kind of its own frequency, right? All the way down to that kind of atomic, subatomic level. Everything is emitting a frequency, we could, in some senses, say that if we had ears to hear, right, the ears that we would hear, the frequency that we would hear of every atomic particle in the universe would somehow be reverberating the love that we have between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, right? Last week, we really kind of, again, we wanted to understand this kind of Father, Son, Holy Spirit as, as what sustains the dynamic of the universe, the frequency of the universe. We wanted to understand the love that we see in between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. That's, that's what it was, it's what it is, and it's what it always will be, right? That the Trinity will be the kind of the triple underline, as we've talked about, of everything. Doug Jones, again in that quote, 
he says, and this is just a little part of it, imagine we really believed, as Dante said, in the love which moves the sun and the other stars, given that the Father, Son, and Spirit, the most fundamental personality of the universe, are love, we should expect the created order, again, think about the frequency, right, to be run by the dynamics of love. So I would say last week, you know, maybe if we kind of honed in on a word, it was a little bit more towards that love. This week, I think if we were to hone in on a word, it would be a little bit more towards invitation. Um, I want to read a story uh, from, the, from the scriptures, uh, and then we're going to use that to kind of launch to a famous painting, a famous icon. Um, and we're going to kind of use that, th- those two um, things to help us kind of reflect on the Trinity a little bit deeper this morning. So if you got a Bible, we'll go to Genesis 18. And we'll be here in the first 15 verses. It's on page 11 of those beautiful paperback Bibles that have done us so faithfully. The kind of subheading of this, this story is called The Three Visitors. Um, this is really on in the biblical story. Um, kind of God calls Abraham to, to be the one who he's going to begin this redemptive project for the world. The world has fallen into chaos. It's fallen out of order. There was the fall. God calls this man Abraham. He says, Abraham, it's through your sons, it's through your family that I'm going to begin to restore and redeem the world. Obviously, the Abraham lineage stretches all the way down to Christ. It keeps stretching on. But this is, this is kind of this guy, Abraham, that we're encountering towards the early parts of the story of God's redemption story. And so you have this, this kind of story called the three visitors. Verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great tree of Marm while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them... He hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said. Get three sheaths of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice ten, uh, a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. Then he brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? 
and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh, right? So you have this narrative. Now, there's, there's a whole sermon or multiple sermons actually on the story itself. But this narrative is, is again, where I'm going to kind of, is, is going to be the backbone for something that I want to show you. And it's a painting by a guy named Andrei Rublev. Now, Andrei Rublev, born in the year 1360. So this guy is the old school of the old school. Born somewhere around the city of Moscow. Um, we kind of first have the recording of this guy's name as he is painting um, icons and frescoes for this Cathedral of Annunciation in Moscow. So you can kind of see the cathedral is on the left-hand side. The paintings, the frescoes, um, I, this is kind of hard to see. We might have to, um, but you can maybe do this, this some, some Google image search. But if you've been inside kind of a classical Eastern Orthodox or Orthodox church, you have always seen the beautiful paintings that they have all around. So Rublev paints a lot of these things. It's the first time we kind of hear his name. It's, he's about 45 years old, so in the year 1405. He passes away in 1430, but around the year 1410, he paints an icon referencing this narrative, the hospitality of Abraham, right? Abraham's hospitality towards these three visitors. Now, Rublev knew that you couldn't just kind of casually or glibly paint a picture of the Godhead, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No one's ever seen God. No one's ever seen the Holy Spirit. So what Rublev ends up doing is he uses the Genesis 18 narrative. These three visitors, right? Which Abraham at one point then refers to him or he starts talking to them as Lord, is it the Trinity? I don't know if I would go that far, but there's, there's some kind of, um, some, some sacred space that's happening in there. He uses Genesis 18 narrative as a form, a type, an analogy to help us grasp and visualize the Trinity. This is, here's the image, and you've probably seen me use this before. This image, this icon is without a doubt the greatest painting, the greatest image of the Trinity that we as Christians, uh, Orthodox, Evangelical, Catholics, across the board, this is kind of the greatest icon, the greatest painting um, of the Trinity that we as Christians possess. So this is kind of what it looks like, um, kind of in its, its natural form. If you were to go to the museum, uh, it's in Moscow, or maybe it's in St. Petersburg, but if you were to go to the museum and see it, you, you would see something that looks like this. Now, people have taken it and kind of taken a lot of the noise out and kind of cleaned it up to make it look like this, which kind of gives just a little bit more of the contrast. It just kind of cleans it up. It's, it's, the, same, it's the same kind of thing. So this painting, again, it becomes more than just a painting. It becomes an icon. Now, we're as evangelicals, we're not familiar with, with icons, right? It's not something that we spend time with. So let me just kind of lay out what an icon is. And then um, an icon, and this is, this is from a source. I wish I could give the, the direct quote from the source, but as I was reading on it, there wasn't a name attached to it. So this isn't my 
exact phrasing, but this is just an icon is not a painting in the sense we normally regard pieces of art, although it is an image that is painted, right? Rublev just painted this, but this becomes an icon. An icon is a window out of the obvious realities of everyday life into the realm of God. Icons are religious images that hover between two worlds, putting into colors and shapes what cannot be grasped by the intellect. Rendering the invisible visible, every paint stroke has a meaning hollowed by centuries of prayer, right? So icons, again, something that we're not very familiar with, but an icon is something that you would look on, something that you would gaze upon. It's, it's literally supposed to be kind of this window between the obvious, the visible realities of everyday life and, um, and kind of the, the, the realm of God. Now, this sometimes for us in the West, evangelicals is not very comfortable language. Sometimes we kind of get a little weirded out, and, and some, that's, that's kind of normal just because we don't um, spend a lot of time with icons. But we do, we just don't think about it. So let me give you an example of an icon that's right here in our church. Um, if you were to go down Chapman Avenue and you were to go to Home Depot and you were to pick up this fine 4x4 for 1398 it's expensive, right? Those used to be like four or five bucks. Yeah, six bucks. <sighs> um, if you were to pick up this uh, piece of four by four and, and you were to cut it down and you were to fashion it together, you would have what's hanging uh, above our, our Eucharist table right here, right? It's, it's really just a simple piece of wood. Cook, you remember these, these crosses, right, from Seaside? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's wood that he, a friend of mine, he took and he, he, he beat it up and then he stained it and he burned it and he... Who just dressed it? Was it Boyer? It was John. Yeah, yeah John, John made these and, um, and, and they, they just kind of got, has like this kind of rugged look to it. And perhaps you've sat here on a Sunday morning, right? And you've looked at this Home Depot four by four with some paint and stain and some marks on it. And it's become something far more than just a 4 by 4 from Home Depot, right? Again, it's become, in a sense, an icon. This is what icons are supposed to do. We don't sit here and we don't worship the cross in the sense of like, oh, wow, holy cross, you're so wonderful. We simply allow that to kind of mediate a space between the, the physical realities that are all around us into the deeper things of God. The idea behind icons is to captivate your attention, and your imagination towards the worship of and the worship to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Um, this is, this is, um, is it the right brain, the creative side? This is the right brain that's the creative side that we'll, we'll engage this morning. So I have this image. And again, I, I think as I've kind of grown over my faith over the past few years, this image has become one of the most powerful images that I've held on to. And what I want to do is just give you a few minutes. I want you just to take a little bit of time and look at it. And if, write down just, just general observations, just what do you see about it? Right? What do you see about this particular painting, this icon? 
that stands out um, as if you were kind of staring in a museum and you're just kind of looking at it. How would you assign if you were someone to say, okay, if this is kind of this, this analogy, this, this image of the Trinity, um, how would you assign the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit figures? Which way would you kind of do that? Um, what do you notice about the background, the rock, the tree, the building? Is there something in this icon that makes you consider the Trinity or worship God in a different way? Uh, how does this relate to Genesis 18? How is it different from Genesis 18? So again, just take a few minutes. And then I have, I have some like notes on this, again, from kind of people as they studied it over the last couple centuries that we will work through. As you do this, there's no wrong answers, right? I'm not going to collect this afterwards and like give you an A on it or a B minus or a C. It's just for your observation. It's just to engage that right brain as we think about the Trinity. Um, and then we'll kind of, we'll have some, some further thoughts. So five minutes. Um, no rush, but just five minutes and then we'll, we'll kind of go come back to it.
Okay. Um, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts, and then I'll, I'll share a couple things. But before I start, kind of giving you guys some other thoughts. But what would you come up with um, on any of those any of those questions? How did you assign the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit figures? I, I, I didn't. No? <laughs> I tried to, but then. We disagreed on, on ours. We thought, <laughs> I, I thought it was, it was like the Father up top, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you know? Okay. And then, and then Liz thinks that, that the two guys on the right are, 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 are with me left. That's the first. Um, so then the Father would be on the left? Okay. That's good. I did, that, that did not come up to, um, to any of the, the readings that I've done, so that's interesting to think about it that way. And that's why it's, it's beautiful that there's not, there's not wrong answers here, right? I didn't know, but it seems like there's three. Yes. And mm -hmm. they're holding something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, again, again, these are kind of these angelic figures that that visit Abraham, right? Uh, so yes, there, there's there's kind of some, you know, again, the angel wings. They have this kind of staff or scepter. I'll talk about that. They're all bowing to one another. There, there is. And, and people pick up on that, that, again, these three figures, again, is representative, an analogy for Father, Son, and Spirit, all bowing to one another. The, the three things in the background, mm -hmm. you know, it's just interesting that it's, again, three, um, you know, I think of, like, the tree of life, um, just, like, different biblical references. That's really good because that was something that I picked up on as well too. Is is the imagery? Does how does the imagery correlate? Mm -hmm. And again, it kind of depends on how you assign each person how that imagery would correlate. Let me throw a couple things out for discussion or for consideration, and then maybe we'll have an opportunity to kind of follow up on, on some of this. So a couple observations, again, as, as kind of been, have classically been understood. The bodies are two times longer in proportion to the heads. Now, this is done as Rublev does this. It's, it's, in, it's in order to convey lightness, kind of weightlessness, this kind of otherworldly reality, which kind of then correlate or correlates with, with the wings. Right, so as you look at these kind of long, slender, almost angelic, kind of um, transcendent reality bodies, um, 
you, Rublev does this intentionally. Again, it's in, in proportion to the head. You have these really long, kind of slender bodies. They're winged. All three heads, Dietrich, you mentioned this, and, and most folks would say this as well, too, that they're bowing to one another, right? As the Trinity, we would understand the Trinity to always be deferring to one another. Um, I, I don't know if this picture is clear enough or if we are able to see this clear enough, but all the faces are exactly the same. Rublev paints all the faces exactly the same. Um, speaking of the same, what they are holding, these staffs, these scepters, are, um, are the same length. They're exactly the same length, right? And then one of the interesting things as well, too, is they are all wearing blue. Um, blue being this kind of almost, as, as historians, art historians have understood this, Blue being this kind of color representative of heaven, right? So this kind of, again, the, the, the length of the bodies, the wings, the heavenly colors kind of all, all come together. Just some, some real um, basic observations. Uh, and then I, you know, I don't think I have this one as, as a little bullet, but I, I did see this. And I think I'm going to talk about, I initially had seen like, you said tree of life. I, I, I don't, were you re referring to a tree of life in the Garden of Eden? So I hadn't initially seen kind of like the tree of life, you know, from, from tree to city is one giant way to think about the scriptures. It starts with the tree in the Garden of Eden, right? That, that is kind of the main focal point. And then at the end of the scriptures, the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven. So it almost kind of goes from, from tree to city. Then I was kind of considering the rock. How does a rock play into that too? I'll get to that as I kind of think about um, how I consider the persons. So on the left, the two kind of classical understandings is one is that the left is the father, okay? You have that kind of blue under, you know, kind of shirt, we would say. And then you have this kind of translucent, transparent cloak. Um, and again, that translucent, transparent cloak because of the hiddenness of God, right? This kind of hidden aspect of God. Um, you see him with his right hand. I think it's a little hard to see, but you see him with his right hand with the two fingers. He's blessing the son, right? He's pleased with, um, with the sacrifice of the son. Um, you kind of also see, some people say just in normal kind of doxology, you know, as you pray or think about the doxology, uh, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, praise Father, Son, and Spirit. So some people just read it as the doxology, that the Father would be on the left, the Son would be in the middle, and then the Spirit would be on the right. That's one way to think about it. Um, another way to think about it is that the Holy Spirit is on the left. Again, the colors of gold and blue, heaven and royalty, Again, that kind of translucent, transparent nature of the cloak, um, the invisibility of the Holy Spirit. We don't see the Holy Spirit. It kind of has that, that transparent nature of the Holy Spirit. And some people will put the Holy Spirit on the left because they are going to orient the Son in the middle and then the Father on the right. Okay. In the center, most people would kind of commonly agree that this is supposed to be the figure of the Son. He's wearing red, which is the color. I know it's kind of hard to see, and it's kind of like a, it's almost like more of a brown, I think, in this painting or this picture. 
again, kind of as you would see it maybe on a better image, it would be red, which would be the color of passion, right? Um, you do have what people would say is the tree is behind him, right? Obviously, in the, in the Abrahamic story, it's that tree of marm, which they sit underneath as they're having this meal. <laughs> we would understand it as Christians as the tree that foreshadows the cross. Some people, as I was reading and studying this, actually see the cross or like a, like a representation of the cross. I don't know if I see that, but again, that tree kind of foreshadowing the cross. If you put the Holy Spirit on the left and you put the sun in the middle, then you also have the sun sitting at the right hand of God, right? Jesus talks about this you will see the Son of Man, you will see Jesus ascend into heaven and sit at the right hand of God. So you see him talking about the right, sitting at the right hand of God. Um, you have the two fingers on the table representing the humanity and the divinity. And then lastly, if we were to think about on the right, again, we can kind of flip-flop the Father and the Son here. The Father, of the creator of Hev, missing the end there, the creator of Heve. Um, the creator of heaven and earth. So the heaven would be the blue and the, the earth would be the green, kind of the two colors of his um, robe. You have the son, again, sitting at the right hand of the father. You have, Robin, I think you said this, God sitting underneath the rock, right? God, one of the dominant images of the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, is God as a rock, as a fortress, um, as someone that God, um, we can go to. And then again, if we think about the Holy Spirit, green, um, if, if you think about the point to put the Holy Spirit on the, on the right-hand side, green is a color of life, of regeneration. You have a hand on the table. Um, that hand on the table, sometimes the, the, the sun and the spirit, the hands on the table, as, as they share the cup of suffering, the Holy Spirit present in Jesus uh, during his suffering, right? During that cup of suffering, and then you have this gaze towards the open space. The Holy Spirit, if you put him on the right, and if you look at it, it almost looks like the Holy Spirit is gazing towards this open space. So that's just kind of some observations on the icon itself. No wrong or right answer. An exercise for our right brain to, to engage this. Let me close with this one thought. And this, is, this has been the moment, the aha moment for me as I've always kind of reflected on this, this icon over the past when I did this Trinity series, um, and I talked about this last week, back in 2007 with the junior high kids, we always used to do these camp booklets. And it'd have the worship songs in it, it'd have the sermon notes, it'd have all these little things. This was on the cover. I used this image on the cover because this image... So as I've thought about this image over the last 14 years, the aha moment for me, the real moment for me is, is kind of this last piece. And we can kind of debate the like father, son, spirit, the, the rock, the tree, the whatever... Here's the real aha moment for me as you think about this. And I think this is the real genius behind what Rublev is doing here, right? James Bryan Smith uses this in The Magnificent Story. And it's been said a couple different ways. But at the front of the table, there's an opening, right? There's an opening at the front of the table. Now, Smith makes this note in his book. He says, at the front of the table is a rectangular hole, right? Right here. And he says, I've always wondered what that meant. Nothing in an icon is random. Everything is symbolic, right? You don't just aren't, aren't just kind of painting things for whatever reason. 
there's symbolism behind each and everything as we just kind of explored. He says, art historians have discovered a glue residue in that rectangle. One explanation is that Rublev might have glued a mirror at the front of the table. He says, while we do not know for sure, and to have a mirror there would have been uncommon, Smith says, I find that possibility fascinating. If it's true, right, if Rublev did in, in turn have had a mirror glued, now again, this, this icon is 600 years old. Again, the condition of it is not in good condition. He says, if it's true, then the person standing before the icon would see their own face at the table. He says, if, even if it's not true, it gets to the heart of what the Trinity desires for us to enter into their fellowship, right? Now, a guy named Henry Nowen, as he reflected on it, reflected a very similar sentiment. And again, this is the aha moment. This is what I hope we think about today. The more we look at this holy image with the eyes of faith, the more we come to realize that it is painted not as a lovely decoration for a covenant church, nor as a helpful explanation of a difficult doctrine, but as a holy place to enter and stay within. As we place ourselves in front of the icon in prayer, we come to experience a gentle invitation to participate in the intimate conversation that is taking place among the three divine angels and join them at the table. He goes on, the movement from father towards the son and the movement from both the son and spirit toward the father become a movement in which one, the one who prays is lifted up and held secure. We come to see with our inner eyes that all engagements in this world can bear fruit only when they take place within this divine circle, the house of perfect love, right? Last week, we talked about this idea of the universe kind of being founded and sustained in love, right? That this is what holds the universe together. The idea here, and again, if you were to at some point stand here and you stand here, the idea here is that we would stand and that there is this invitation for us to be welcomed into this conversation, this heart of the Trinity, that the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit welcomes us into this fellowship, into this love. Um, I've always said that, not I always said, but I think A.W. Tozer said, what we think about God is the most important thing about us, right? This, instead of that kind of... Um, big grandpa in the sky, which often comes to mind when we think about God. I have worked very hard over the years that this, when somebody says, what do you think about when you think about God? This would be my image. Because it gets to the heart of what I believe God is, that God has opened up a space for us to come and have fellowship and dwell with him. Here, right? Here in this world that he has opened up his space and forever, that t seat at the table has been opened towards us. One last quote, and then we'll, we'll do a couple songs. Um, a guy named Fred Sanders says it like this. He says, the good news of the gospel is that God has opened up the dynamics of his triune life and given us a share in that fellowship, right? 
if you were to close your eyes and somebody said, what does God look like? And you say, I see three people sitting around a table. But there's an open space for me because God wants me to be at that table. The Son gave his life for me to be at the table. The Spirit empowers me to be at that table. The Father's love compels me to be at that table, right? He says that good news only makes sense against the background of something even better than the good news. The goodness that is the perfection, the love of God himself. We get to sit at this table, right? The good news is that we get to sit at this table. The even better news is that the people who are sitting at the table is the frequency of love that sustains, that permeates, that resonates through the entire universe, right? Again, everything in this world, triple underlined. So as we think about this kind of image of Rublev, and again, I, I hope that you take this just as, as the one that we, um, we, we, I gave out last week, and maybe you fold it up and, and stuff it in your Bible or a journal or something like that. I would say for the last 14 years of, of my walk with the Lord, this has been one of the most powerful images that I've come back to again and again, simply because, again, we can kind of talk about the rock and the tree and the building, right? The Holy Spirit represents a temple. The tree represents the, uh, the cross, the rock of God, or, you know, the staffs or the faces. The fact that there is the open, ta- the open seat there or the open spot at the table or perhaps the mirror that we would see ourselves there has been one of the most, um, it's just really changed the way that I think about God in, in my relationship with him, about the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Um, I don't have any specific discussion questions because kind of in, in light of the discussion, I wanted to do that, um, just kind of have, give you some space. But any, any last thoughts or kind of ideas or um, yeah, has this been helpful in, in some way for, for us to think about the Trinity this morning? Eric, I got a, I got a verse that you kind of sparked the idea of being seated with them, with God, yeah. with, at that table, right. in that beautiful image. And then it sparked the thought of, like, biblically, you know, Paul uses, uses this language in Christ, mm-hmm. in Christ, mm-hmm. in a sense, in a sense, it could be argued that we already are seated with him mm-hmm. and I was like looking for the verse right so not that this is the only sort of verse but this one from Ephesians 2 so in Ephesians Paul uses that in him right chapter 1 is just this magnificent in him yeah. you were predestined according to the riches of his grace and in him right like so in the chapter 2 starting at verse 4 so it's verse 4 through 6 but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Paul keeps going up. By grace you've been mm-hmm. saved. Here it is. And raised us up with him mm. and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And it goes on, but this idea of in some sense we are with him. Um, And I don't know how that works. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and in some way we are in Christ by faith. Um, So again, 
still a lot of questions and how does that work and look, but um, just kind of exciting and kind of cool to think somehow this poly language somehow we're seated. Yeah. Seated and we're, you know what I mean? Yeah. At that table, at the right hand of the Father in Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that verse really kind of does a lot of, brings a lot home yeah. to this to this image. Because, yes, there is that. And then, you know, I was just kind of skipping ahead too. And he says, you know, say we are seated, right? And then he says, um, in order that in the coming ages, right. he might show his incomparable. So there is that kind of coming age, that, that next step of like, right. man, one day, like we, we kind of know it, right. but one day we're really, we're really going to know what it's like to sit down at that table. Yeah. Um, Oh man, I don't, if that doesn't give you goosebumps, I don't know. Maybe you need to get your pulse checked or something like that because that's something to think about. Any other thoughts? So in the Genesis 18 story, Abraham prepares a meal for these angelic visitors, right? In in this, you know, I didn't talk, I didn't really touch on that in some of just some of, some of the general observations. Um, yeah, it's like where's the calf? Where's the bread? Where's the mm -hmm. Is it the cup of suffering, right? That Jesus kind of is is almost touching there if if the sun is in the center. Is it um, the cup of the new covenant? You know, what, what is it? Just kind of representative of, of a meal that the, the Holy, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are sharing. Um, is it just you know? Again, as we think about us seated at the table, and they're just the idea that that the Father, Son, and the Spirit say, "Come, come, come." I, I know that kind of old King James, "Come sup with me," right? That kind of come have supper with me, come, come eat with me. Um, is that something that's, that's happening? Just here's, here's an invitation to a meal, you know, so. We will, um, again, as we always do and every week we will, uh, I hope that the table that is open for us in the Eucharist in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, um, I hope that we remember the goodness that's found in the bread uh, and in the wine, that we, for one more day, we remember um, the, the price that God paid for us to be able to, to sit at that table, right? That he, that he did forgive us. And we've, we've made quite a mess of this thing and God said, but I'll take that, I'll, I'll pay that, um, and you can come sit down with me. And so we remember that in the Eucharist, that, that this wasn't just something that God waved a magic wand at. Um, he sacrificed his son. He sacrificed a part of the Godhead, a part of the Trinity, 
that the love that sustains the universe has been extended to us very personally, um, very real. So we, we remember that as we take the Eucharist today. And I know a lot of our kids are going to come in and take it as a snack, and that's okay. We're going we're gonna to think about that. God, some, somehow we're, we're training within not only our children, but within ourselves. Um, the reality that it is the Eucharist, that it is the body and the blood of Christ, that it is his very presence here among us, that is what sustains us. So um, at some point, as Aaron plays some songs, we'll, we'll do, um, uh, come and take the Eucharist and, and we'll, we'll go from there. And I'm sure the little kids will be running in here too. So, all right, my man, shall we?